Amen. Thank you, Vicki. <clears throat> Our scripture passage this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, if you were here with us this past fall, you know that we spent some time in 1 Samuel uh, looking at the life of David. Here at the beginning of the year, we're going to continue that uh, series in 2 Samuel talking about the kingdom. Uh, and at the, here at the beginning of the year, I think it's important to remember that there is a kingdom, particularly as 2024 is an election year. And so who knows what this, man, who knows what this year is going to be. Uh, but there is a kingdom uh, that, that Jesus is bringing, that he is building, that we inherit and that we receive. Uh, and these texts remind us of that. But we come this morning to what is a pivotal text, a pivotal text, 2 Samuel 7. This is a really big deal. I know pastors say that all the time, but this one in particular, most people say it is the theological center of the David material. It's in many ways the theological center of the entire Old Testament. And so it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, and so we get to look at it here uh, at the beginning of our, our year in this first week. Now, we're going to read the whole thing because it's so important, okay? And it's long. So just bear with me as we read. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to read this entire chapter. Uh, it's worth it, I promise. So follow along with me if you will. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, or it's printed for you in the worship folder. It's on your screen behind me. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well. Let's read as God makes covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7. Now, when the king, that is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that it is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, however. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with anyone of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus, you saw, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. From following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that... To you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words, and in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, 
Because of your promise and according to your heart, to your own heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is God's word. Would you say with me? The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Stephen Covey, who authored probably a book you've heard of called The Seven Habits of a Highly Effective People, he coined the phrase uh, that gets thrown around a lot. He said, the main thing, do you know this? The main thing is to keep the main thing, the what? The main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's good to remember, I think, here at the beginning of the new year when we are full of fresh resolve and new ideas and plans. Now, Stephen Covey is a productivity guru. And in that arena, getting things done requires incredible focus. You have to identify the most important tasks and then stubbornly refuse to get sidetracked from those things uh, so that you can do the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. Now, in my personal unofficial job description, my, I have a document on my computer that's my personal mission statement. I, I've gotten to the place where I've done it this way, where I've, I've talked about what I feel like the Lord has called me to do and some of my roles and tasks, and then I have a list of to-dos. So this is what, this is kind of the mission of my life, and this is what, this is the list of to-dos that are in line with that mission. But I've also started to add another column, which is not just a column of to-dos, but a second column of to-don'ts. You know, this is what I feel like God's called me to, and this is what this means, but in order to do this, it means I, I have to refuse to do these things. And so it says things like, my work includes the following, and then I list some things out to remind myself of the things I feel like, you know, the Lord has really called me to. And then I say, it does not include. And then I have a long list of things. What's interesting is, is in many ways, it's the same in the spiritual life. In the spiritual life, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is what is at issue in this text here, 2 Samuel 7. If you look at verse 19, David picks up on this. He realizes the gravity and the weight of what the Lord is doing here, of the lesson, the revelation that God is giving to him. He says there in verse 19, he says, This is instruction for all mankind, O Lord God. Let me translate that. Like he, He's saying everybody needs to know this. Everybody needs to understand this. The Lord was teaching David a very important lesson about keeping the main thing the main thing. And it's a lesson that we all need to learn too. 
And in many ways, what that verse means in verse 19 is that if you get this, then you get it. If you get what God is teaching David here and what he's teaching us here, then you get it. And if you get it wrong, you're going to be wrong about everything else too. Because in many ways, what we learn here is how to keep the main thing the main thing. God was making a covenant with David. That's what this text really is, even though that word does not appear in the text. Psalm 132 makes it clear that that's what's happening here. And in the ancient world, to make a covenant was to enter into a legal and binding relationship with another person. And there were promises that were made and responsibilities that were formally assumed by each of the parties in the covenant. And so it was a very formal ritual, something very formal in the ancient world, much like a wedding ceremony in our context where uh, where you know these sorts of things take place, but also like a wedding, the covenant covenants were relational. They were ways of formalizing relationship between parties. And all throughout, the Bible describes David over and over again. It describes David as having a special place in God's heart and a special place in God's plans for the world. David, like Abraham and like some other heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, David, uh, David is characterized as a person with a close, personal, intimate relationship with God himself. And of course, he penned most of the, uh, you know, a lot of the Psalms, so that makes sense. But here, what's happening is the Lord is making sure that David understands how that special relationship that they were to enjoy with one another was supposed to work because there was nothing like what God reveals here known to the world at that time. And in many ways, there's nothing like what God reveals here known to our world either because there is no one like the Lord. I mean, look at verse 22. This is what David confesses. He says, there is none like you, God, and there is none beside you. And in many ways, that is the crisis of faith in our, in our own day, that there is none like God. What the God of the Bible does and who he is and the things he claims and the things he does is so unlike what every other religion in the whole world claims that it's something absolutely unique. But at the same time, not only is there none like him, but there's no one else beside him. And David comes to this realization and conclusion. And so really where this text leads us is to ask uh, some questions so that we can do a diagnosis. And that's why it's good to maybe begin the year this way. And my, my question to you this morning, because what God's doing is he's saying this special relationship we have is unique in some profound ways. And that uniqueness has to be maintained. That uniqueness is the main thing that has to remain the main thing in order for you to succeed in the spiritual life. And so here's the way I would pose it to you this morning. As you think about what it means for you to be a person of faith, if, if in fact that is true for you, what is the basis of your relationship with God? I mean, what are you basing that personal relationship that he wants to have with you and that you claim to have with him on? Is it your works or is it his mercy? Or maybe a better way to put that uh, Dane Ortland, in his um, book, Gentle and Lowly, he puts it this way. There are two ways you can live. You can live toward God's smile, or you can live from God's smile. Are you living, like here, January 7th, at the beginning of the year, he's saying, Maybe this, this is the year where I'm going to get my act together. And God's going to be so proud of me, and it's going to be great. Or are you entering into the year saying, I am a big, hot mess, just like I was last year and the year before that. In the year before that, but the lesson I'm learning is that Jesus loves me anyway. Those are two very different ways of living. Are you living for, for his smile, 
in the hopes of earning and achieving a smile from the Lord, or are you living from his smile? And that really is what the text is leading us towards is the consideration of those things. Because you see two things contrasted here, and I'm going to be really simple. Like, there's so much here, and in many ways I'm very unsatisfied with how much we can get to this morning. But there are really two, two, different, two different ways of relating to God that are, that are really revealed here. There's what I'm going to call in-shaped religion. I'll explain it, don't worry. In-shaped religion. And the second that's opposed to that is actually U-shaped grace. So in-shaped religion is living for the smile of God. U-shaped grace is living from the smile of God. And then we're going to make some applications as we see uh, the lesson that David learns here. Okay, okay. so let's start with what I mean by U-shaped religion because that's where the text begins too. Let me explain. So you look there in verse 1. The scene begins with David planning to build a house for God. God had given him victory over his enemies He'd settled into Jerusalem. He was living in a palace, verse 2. It says there, a house of cedar. That may not mean anything to you and me. In the ancient world, if you read that, you would be like, ooh, fancy. Like, this would have made it on MTV Cribs, okay? Like, I mean, this is like something. David, they've built something for David here. And yet, we learn that even though that's the case, the ark is still being housed in a tent. And David realizes there's something wrong about that. So he determined to make a house for God that would rival his house. He went to Nathan the prophet, who approved the plans for this building project, because what pastor has ever turned down the offer of someone to fund a capital campaign? Nathan said, sounds like a great idea to me. And yet, later that night, the Lord began to speak. Nathan said yes, at least initially, but God said no. And the question, of course, is why? Why would the Lord refuse David's, you know, very natural, very generous, you know, desire here? Because it was very common in the ancient Eastern world for a king, when he had achieved military victory over his enemies, and settled into his capital, the very first order of business in his administration would be to build a huge temple to his God, to express his gratitude, but more importantly, to make sure to secure future blessing and success. And so David was just doing what every other king would have done. The problem is, is David was just like all the other kings, but the Lord was not like all the other gods. See? And that was a problem. Uh, I listened to a sermon. Pastors do this, you know. We, we, uh, we stalk other pastors on, on YouTube sometimes. But I was listening to a sermon from Christmas Eve. Uh, it had just come across my feed, and I was curious. And uh, the church and the pastor will remain nameless because I, I have to say, as I listened to it, I was, I was really shocked and I was grieved because it so badly missed the point. And it was, you know, a shorter sermon because Christmas Eve, of course, but, you know, Christmas Eve service, most, like, kind of the most special time of the year, right? And, and here was the application at the end. So uh, the pastor, even, he even threw up a bullet points on the screen, and this is what he wanted the people to be left with on Christmas Eve. Here's what it said. It said, God sometimes uses the unexpected. God often works in the routine, but God always rewards the faithful. And then he said, pray that that is you. 
that you're not just going through the motions this Christmas, but that you are remaining faithful to who God is. Now let's do, let's do lighting candles. That's literally how it went. And my heart just sunk because it's subtle, but here's one, and I don't do this very often. You guys know this, right? I mean, I, I'm very careful. I don't do this very often, but this seemed appropriate. It's, my heart sunk because it's subtle, but that is spiritually deadly. Because it implies that the main thing of Christmas, as you go into Christmas celebration, the thing you should be thinking about, the main thing is how you come to God when the main thing in Christmas is that God has come to us. And unfortunately, this happens all the time. Even inside of Christianity, it's what I'm calling U-shaped religion, which I stole, straight up stole, from a man named Christopher Walken in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, which, by the way, I've listed for you there as a resource. And if, there, if it's, it, it's the one book from 2023 that you should read. Now, it's 800 pages long, so just, you know, know that. It could take you the whole year. It'd be great, you know. But it, it, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing book. And he has this image of what he means by in-shape religion. I think we have it. We're going to pop it on the screen if we've got it, if you guys are ready for it. Uh, and if it doesn't get up there, then it doesn't get up there, and that's okay. But here, there you go. Do you see the end? And he says this. He says, the great majority of ancient pagan religions as well as the assumptions of most people today when they think about God at all is that relations with the deity operate according to an in-shape dynamic. So we offer something to the God, and the God responds with a blessing. We make a sacrifice, and the God gives us a reward. We expectantly scratch God's back, and then God obligingly scratches ours. So it's just very simple, but so profound. So you see the end, the upward stroke of the end followed by the downward stroke. You do for God, God will do for you. Perform and then you'll get the blessing. Performance, then the prize. This is the default human setting. This is the default mode of human society. Tim Keller called it a performance narrative, that the main thing in your relationship with God is what you're doing or not doing or what you promise to do in the future. There's an apocryphal story told about a British conference on comparative religions in which ex experts debated what, if any, belief was unique to Christianity. And the particip participants there began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation? Well, no. Other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form, so resurrection maybe. But again, not, not entirely unique to Christianity uh, because there's some other accounts of similar things. And the debate went on for some time until, of course, C.S. Lewis wandered into the room as this was taking place, wondering what all the fuss was about. And when the question was posed to him, he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, they all agreed that the issue was, in fact, settled. It was grace. Because, of course, Buddhism has the Eightfold Path, and Hinduism has the Doctrine of Karma, and Islam has the Five Tenets, and Judaism has the Law of Moses, and each of those offer a way to earn salvation, to live toward the smile of God, but only Christianity claims that salvation is, in fact, a gift. But the problem, however, is that this in-shape performance-ism can subtly make its way into Christianity. Paul's letter to the Galatians, for example, was written because there was a teaching that had come into the church that Paul had planted there that said, you know, the main thing 
The main thing in this whole deal, you know, this Christianity thing, is whether or not you're obeying the rules. It's not Jesus. It's not the cross or the resurrection or the Holy Spirit. The main thing, the main thing is you. The main thing is whether you're doing the things that God expects of you, your faithfulness, not God's, your works, not God's mercy. And Paul was blunt with them, very blunt. He said, when this happens, he says, you become cut off from Christ. You've fallen from grace. Moralism, this in-shaped dynamic, is not a cheap, knockoff version of Christianity, it's not Christianity. What is Christianity is what, I, what I'm going to call U-shaped grace. So see, in the text, God responded to David's desire for all these things that David was going to do. I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be great. I have all of these things I want to do for you, God. And here, I'm going to build you a house, God. And what is amazing about the text is the way, the way God just turns it on its head. God responded to David's desire to build a house for him by saying, no, David, you don't understand. That's not the way this is going to work between you and me. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. You see that? Isn't that amazing? The covenant, this covenant we're making, this kingdom that we're building, it's something to which you contribute Nothing, which means for us, what matters most in your relationship with God is not what you do for him, but what he does for you. What holds it together is not your love and faithfulness to him, but his love and faithfulness to you. The basis of every promise that God makes is not whether you prove worthy, or, but whether, in fact, his word proves true. And typically, in a covenant ceremony like this, it would emphasize the responsibilities of both parties. So each party would take their turns saying the things that they were obliging themselves to do in the covenant. But here, what is unique and what the scholars say is very clear, all of the emphasis is on God and God's activity and what God has done to bring David to this moment and what he promised to do in the future. So there's past grace, there's future grace. God, as you go through this text in the first 17 verses, he is the first person subject of 23 verbs. Just listen to some of them. It's overwhelming. It's meant to be like a fire hydrant on a New York City street in the middle of August, just to be drench you with what God says here. Look, here's what he says. He says, David, don't you understand? That's really sweet, David. You want to build a house for me, but let's remember what, what really is going on here. I took you from the pasture and made you king, verse 8. I have been with you and given you victory over all of your enemies, verse 9. I will make your name great, verse 9. I will appoint a place for my people and plant them there and keep them safe, verse 10. I will give you rest from all of your enemies, verse 11. I will make for you a house. I will raise up your sons and grandsons to be king after you, verse 12. I will establish their kingdom through the generations, verse 13. I will love them just like I have loved you, verse 14, I will punish them for their sins, but I will never stop loving them. I will never give up on them for your sake, verse 15. And eventually, he says, I will send my own son, the true king, and I will establish his throne and your kingdom forever and ever to the end of time. Past grace, future grace, absolutely, as you read it, absolutely nothing in all of that about what David had done 
or was to do for God. Nothing. And that, see, verse 19, that's the instruction. Not just for David, but for us as well. That the God of the Bible is not like all the other gods. He's a God of grace. And the only basis for a relationship with him is his mercy. The work he does for you, not the work you do for him. And if you get this, then you get it. But if you leave it out or if you lose it like the Galatians, then everything else goes with it. You end up outside of Christianity. So Christopher Walken, again, he refers to this as the U-shaped dynamic. So we have another slide, and you can compare it to the N-shape. So see, this time the U, do you see it? And here's what he says. He says, the notion that righteousness in God's favor are not and cannot be earned revolutionizes the whole apparatus of religion. As opposed to salvation being earned, whether entirely or in part, and religious ethics being a code intended to help the religious observer draw near to the deity and perhaps even earn its favor, within the Christian framework, salvation is a gift and the ethics is an exercise in gratitude. So here, see, in this, the main thing, what's the main thing? Is the main thing you? Is the main thing what you do? See, here the main thing is God. And what God has done, God comes down. Do you see that? The, the downstroke of the you. Grace comes down. The grace of God appearing, Vicky read earlier. You know, God comes down, which by the way, hello, that's Christmas. You with me? Like God comes down. He takes all the initiative. He does all the work. We just rejoice and give thanks and rest in what he's done. That's Christmas. He's come down in Jesus. Jesus who died upon a cross becoming our sin taking the punishment that we deserve upon himself, who also lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law to make us righteous so that we might have the blessing and the standing with God and the smile of God that only he deserves. But do you see how it works? So Tim Keller said, just you guys leave that up there for a minute if you would. Tim Keller said it so well, I think. He said, every other religion says you go and you sacrifice, you hurt, you cut yourself, you throw your body into the flames, and you do all of that to show the God your love and your honor and to attract his attention, but only in Christianity, only Christianity and the whole world claims that God has come, that he sacrificed, that he became poor and gave it all away, that he was hurt, that he was cut, that he, as it were, threw his body into the flames and he did it to attract you. But notice, notice that downward movement from God to us. But it doesn't end there, does it? There's a corresponding upward movement of obedience and worship and trust, just like in that in-shaped dynamic. But it comes second, after all that God has done, not first. God goes first, and then we go second. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because see, with in-shaped religion, you obey God, but not because you enjoy him, not because you're amazed by his grace, it's grosser than that, really. In a way, if you dig deep enough, you'll see you're doing it, to, you're manipulating God. You're treating him as a means to an end. You're recruiting him to do your will. To borrow from Augustine, you're using God to enjoy his gifts. But in the U-shape, in the U-shape dynamic, you still obey, but from a completely different set of motivations and desires. It's gratitude. It's love and appreciation that overflows from him first loving you. And in there, you're using God to enjoy his, you're using the gifts to enjoy God himself. And so that's what this text is teaching, that this N-shaped religion and this U-shaped grace are two very different ways of relating to God. And Eugene Peterson has what I think is a tremendous insight 
about the reason behind God's no to David's plans here. He says this, he says, if he's, this is the Lord speaking to David, as it were. He says, if I let you fill Jerusalem with the sights and sounds of your building projects, before long everyone will be caught up in what you're doing and not attentive to what I'm doing. He goes on, there are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen to be a huge distraction from what God is doing for us. And that's the problem. David's building plans for God would have interfered with God's building plans for David, and the lesson would have been lost, which is why the Lord says no, because he loves to magnify his grace. God loves to magnify his grace. God loves to magnify God because he is the main thing. In his own heart, and he wants to be the main thing in your heart too. Now, what's the takeaway? Again, straight, straight at all of this. So what's the takeaway? And I'm going to be just a little bit longer here. I'm a little bit worried about the time, but we'll be okay. And the text, if you'll notice, begins with David's plan to busy himself with his work for God. Verse 1. Do you see that? He's always great plans. Probably like all of, the, you know, if you're this kind of person, probably like all of the New Year's resolutions that you've written on a page already at the beginning of the year, right? But it ends, verse 18, begins with David busying himself with his work for God. It ends with David sitting before the Lord, busying himself with worship and prayer. And so what's the takeaway? And it's from this line from this old hymn, lay your deadly doing down. That's the takeaway. You've got to lay your deadly doing down. Now, what makes it deadly? It's deadly if it's not rooted in the gratitude that's the part of the upward swing of that you that's still on the screen there. It's deadly if it's a righteousness, if it's a letter of recommendation, if it's the thing you're hoping in to finally get the smile of God. It's deadly. Your doing is deadly if you think it is the main thing. Eugene Peterson, again, I'm going to quote him for quite a bit here at the end, but he says this. He says, this may be the single most critical act that David ever did, the action that put him out of action. More critical than killing Goliath, more critical than honoring Saul, his enemy, as God's anointed, more critical than bringing the ark to Jerusalem. He says this, what we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we in fact do. Most Christians, he writes, are characteristically much afraid of doing too little for God, for, for God let alone nothing. But there are moments far more frequent than we suppose when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. I love that line. Doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. That's the repentance. That's the, the effort of keeping the main thing the main thing. We say it like this sometimes. A religious person, a person in that in-shape dynamic, repents of their sins, but a Christian is a person who repents not only of their sins, but also of their righteousness. A Christian is a person who is repenting of all the bad things that they do and also all of the good things that they do and are doing as a way of trying to earn a righteousness of their own and, and gaining the smile of God that they can boast in, that they can then use to demand of God the kind of treatment that they deserve. And so that returning to the truth, returning to the instruction that David talks about here, that God's grace, that God's faithfulness, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us is the main thing. That's the movement of repentance and faith. So lay your deadly doing down, but don't get the wrong idea. Lay it down. And as soon as you lay it down, pick it back up again. But this time with a whole new motivational apparatus. With 
David talks about courage. Listen to his prayer, verse 27. For you, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. And therefore, look there, verse 27, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. It says he found courage, which means the assumption is, is that he didn't have it before. And all that he was doing there at the beginning, all of those activity, you know, all of that activity and plans and all the things, he was acting out of something other than courage. He was acting out of insecurity and fear. He was trying to impress God. He was trying to appease God so that he would continue to bless him and give him victory over his enemies because it takes a certain amount of courage to just stop doing all of that and to sit before the Lord and to trust in his grace and not your own efforts. It requires a revelation, the revelation that we have here to find that kind of courage. But then, of course, the fruit of that courage is what you see on the slide there, the upward swing of gratitude, which is the right motivation. Because when you get the insecurity and the fear out of the way, what's left is gratitude. I was talking with a friend recently, and I came away from the conversation so burdened for them because it was so obvious that he was knotted up about a bunch of different things in his life as we talked. And as we talked, it's just the same thing kept coming up. He kept saying things like, I just got to get this right. I mean, I just gotta, I gotta do it right. I just, I gotta be, I gotta be strong. I gotta be my best self. You could just feel it oozing off of him. I have another friend. This person, this is the person who, you all know these people. This is the person who, if everybody else says no, they're the backup plan every time, right? Because you know that they'll say yes. And this person, this person, he says yes to a lot of people, and it's because he loves people and he's nice, but really it's because he never feels like he's doing enough. He's always trying to do more, and so he's always saying yes. Now, stop worrying about who I'm talking about. Stop trying to figure out if it's you. That's not the point of this, okay? There's a lesson. There's a lesson, and the lesson is this, that that prideful, it all depends upon me attitude lacks the courage that makes gratitude possible. And that fearful, insecure, I'm not doing enough attitude too. It robs you of the gratitude that you're meant to live with. And gratitude is less intense, but more joy. It's less stress. There's less on the line because all of the most important work's already been done. So less stress, but more freedom and more spiritual power too, by the way. And so lay your deadly doing down. But then as soon as you do, Pick it back up with a whole new motivational apparatus, but also with a whole new methodology. Less busyness, more prayer. Listen to Eugene Peterson one more time, and then I'm, I'm done. He says this, God is the beginning and the end and the center of the world's life, of existence itself. But we're often unaware of God's actions, except dimly and peripherally, especially when we're in full possession of our powers. It's hard not to imagine that we're at the beginning, that we're the ones at the beginning and the center and the end of the world. And at these moments, we need to quit whatever we're doing and sit down because when we sit down, he says, the dust raised by our furious activity settles and the noise generated by our building operations goes quiet. And when that happens, we become aware of the real world, of God's world. He goes on, he says, when David sat down before God, it was the farthest thing from passivity or resignation. It was prayer. It was entering into the presence of God, becoming aware of God's strat- of God's world. He goes on, he says, biblical non-doing is neither sloth nor stoicism. It's a strategy. Whereas before David was full of himself, now David is full of God. 
David sat down, and then the real action started. Anybody ever experienced that? He sat down, and the real action started. Not David making God a house, but God making David a house. See, if the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, then prayer is the best strategy that we have. Because prayer, by definition, keeps the main thing the main thing. And here's what I want to say to you. There is no danger. There is no danger that if we choose to sit before the Lord like this, that our legs, our spiritual legs, will somehow atrophy and we will not be able to get back up again. But there is a great danger, a very real danger this text is warning us about. That in, and that is this, that in getting so caught up in our God plans that we, in the process, forget all about God. The main thing is to keep what? The main thing. The what? The main thing. And the way you do that is to listen to the, song, to the, to the hymn writer say this, when, from quoting that hymn that I've already quoted at greater length, where he says, Till to Jesus' work you cling, by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing, doing in, in death. And so he goes on, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, because then, then you stand in him, and him alone, gloriously complete. Amen? That's the lesson. May the Lord teach it to us in his grace. Let's pray together as we come to his table this morning. So, Father, we are no less in need of this lesson because we are, just like the Galatians and just like people of faith through the generations, prone to not keep the main thing the main thing, but to instead get sidetracked with shame over the things that we have failed to do or with pride over feeling confident and boastful about the things that we have done, would you forgive us? Both of those are expressions of unbelief and a failure to rest and trust in your grace. And would you, yet again this morning, call us back to, to the reality of your great love for us in Christ. May we rest in Jesus here at the beginning of this year, not, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it is, it is the way uh, for us to bear fruit that might glorify you, which is David's sincere desire and ours as well. And so we echo his desire. Lord, do something of us. We love you. We want to be faithful. We do. We want to, put, we want to, we want to build something great for you, but, but we pray that you would make sure, work in us in such a way that it would be from a place of gratitude, of resting and rejoicing in the smile of God for us and not a way of making something of ourselves, but making much of you instead. And so we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These words of benediction are so important. And it is such a joy to be able to speak words like this at the end of every service because they remind us yet again that as we are sent now into this week, uh, that the main thing is not whatever you might have planned, or even whatever you might have planned for God, but what God has planned for you. That's the main thing. And that lesson from that song that we just sang, I love that line. There is nothing strong enough to stand against what love has done with outstretched hands. That's the promise that you can go into this week with, and that's what these words mean. And so receive this word of benediction, and then come tonight, celebrate with us at 5 o'clock. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.